Welcome to SignalCast. In this week's episode, we have three interviews. First, Texas Signal CEO Kevin Nix talks to Michelle Liao, a diversity and inclusion consultant and former co-chair of Latino Texas PAC about Latino outreach in the state. And then Signal reporter Fernando Ramirez speaks with Jay Iyer, an adjunct professor of politics at the University of Houston downtown, about the Democratic primaries for the 2020 presidential election. Finally, Kevin Nix talks to Texas State Representative Rafael Anchia about turning Texas blue and endorsing former Vice President Joe Biden. Look, your background in particular is interesting to us right now. Um, A, we have a big Super Tuesday primary coming up. And uh, then obviously a big election year in November, and the Latino vote is going to be uh, critical. And uh, it keeps getting more and more important, um, uh, particularly this year. So first, though, let's talk about you and your story. Uh, we were talking yesterday about your interesting family background. Share, share with folks uh, that story. Sure. So um, I am a third generation Houstonian, born and raised here. And um, I come from a family who got involved in politics by accident. My grandparents got involved in politics um, in part in response to the poll tax um, and then in part because my grandfather was a uh, an immigrant, uh, a refugee of the Mexican Revolution and uh, became a successful business person here in Houston and um, at a time when he was just walking down the street downtown and happened to tip his hat to some white businessmen passing him on the street um, just to say hello. You know, the idea that he would make this gesture that uh, he perceived himself as their equal, offended them so much so that they tried to have him deported. And so that was their first foray into politics and, and getting really actively involved. And, um, you know, that, that trend has continued. And my dad was uh, a judge and here in Harris County for a long time, but also was really politically active. I think one of the things that he was most proud of politically was uh, mentoring and supporting other candidates and encouraging them to run, particularly Latino women. And uh, one of those people was Gracie Sines, who um was a prosecutor in his court who he repeatedly encouraged and even pressured to run for office and then ultimately ran and became the first uh, Hispanic person uh, to, elected to an at-large seat in Houston City Council. And so obviously that's, I assume, inspired you since you've already tipped your hat and run for office. Sure. You know, it inspired me, obviously, to be involved, and I've been really politically active for a long time and really committed to figuring out how I can serve the Latino community and how I can make sure that we are more equitably represented. Um, but I always swore that I would never, ever run. And so, you know, I got enough of it I growing up that I just said I'd never do it. And this opportunity uh, presented itself very unexpectedly. And, um, you know, it just was the right opportunity at the right time for me and ultimately came down to you know some folks that are really important to me including my friends at latino texas pack saying you care so much about this and you encourage others to do it and are you going to get off the sidelines and get in the game or you know what are you going to do would you do it again run again i would do it again in the right circumstance if it were the right opportunity in the right circumstance but um but i would do it again yeah i'm glad i did it we as we all know uh super tuesday is this coming tuesday and uh, a lot is going on to say the least so um at the presidential level what do you see what do you anticipate uh latino turnout to you know where are folks leaning um right now at least um 
whether it's early vote or whether people vote on Tuesday. And I'm, I'm asking about the Latino community. Sure. So, you know, I think the Latino community obviously has really been kicked around the last four years. And, uh, you know, we're uh, we're ready to fight back and we're ready for uh, campaigns to pay attention to us and to really be talking to us and engaging us in an authentic way. And I think that um, where you're seeing that happen, you're seeing momentum. I think that um, that's probably why you're seeing a lot of momentum with the Sanders campaign here in Texas. You, um, you've you got some great Latino leadership there um, at senior levels in his campaign. Um, and I think that translates to some really authentic engagement um, and connection with, with the Latino community and particularly young Latinos. I think that's exciting. Why are young Latinos going for him? You know, I think there is a an element. One, I think there's a real authentic effort to engage them that's happening from his campaign. And then two, I think that there is that anti-establishment element of his message and his campaign that really connects with people who, especially people who come from places or whose parents come from places where there is a lot of political corruption, where they feel like their voice and their vote doesn't matter, and where they just feel really turned off by the establishment. And that's the basis of his whole campaign, right? I think that's why it's not just Latino. It's it's lots of young people right. and lots of older people, right, who are sick and tired of how politics, is, politics has been played and who the players are, gatekeepers are. And then so when it comes to this state, right, do you see, uh, you know, we were talking before we went on about how uh, some Republicans like Abbott, Governor Abbott in 2018 and Ted Cruz, um, Wait, I'm sorry. I have 18. The last gubernatorial election and then Cruz in 18. What, um, you know, they got a relatively high turnout from the Latino community. Uh, I believe Abbott's was 42%. That's that's good for a Republican. You know, what are Democrats not doing right? What do we need to do better? Or what are the Republicans doing well, honestly? I would say, um, particularly when you look at Governor Abbott, I would say that there is an element of the messaging that he is getting right in terms of really being able to sell sort of the Latino in-laws and the Latino familial connections and this very wholesome sort of Texan family values element that um, if you aren't getting into the weeds on policy, which the everyday average Texan is not, who has the time to do that? Right. The, it, it sells really well and it, it sounds like a really nice message. I think where uh, Democrats may be missing the mark is just really um, robust and authentic and inclusive Latino engagement. And that has to be, you know, it has to be multilingual and it has to be multidimensional and it has to be multi-issue and it, it can't just be one thing. Hopefully, uh, after Tuesday, yeah, whoever the presidential nominee is, whoever the U.S. Senate um, nominee, even after the runoff, if there's a runoff, it's going to be, and then a number of congressionals down, the, down ballot. Is there... I mean, does Latino Texas PAC talk to these candidates and, you know, in terms of, you know, you guys need to do this and that better or um, uh, beyond giving them money? Is there an advice? Is there a strategic role? Yeah. And and particularly with down ballot candidates, because we are a state level PAC, so we don't get involved in any of the federal races. But yes, absolutely. And I think that's what made it possible for me personally to be a candidate was having an organization that's 
not only committed to challenging the status quo, but that is saying, we're going to give you money. We're going to give you our time. We're going to show up and knock on doors with you every weekend. And we're going to give you our advice and our expertise. And we're going to tell you how to do this and, you know, guide you in the right direction. It is so hard when you're kind of building that from nothing as a candidate and, and um, to have an organization that is providing that. I think it's really, really critical. And I think we need, um, you know, more groups that are willing to do that and to make that kind of investment in candidates. Is it a lack of focus on this this topic in Houston, which is where, you know, we are and live, versus Austin? I mean, Austin has some of this certainly going on, right? And the Texas Organizing Organizing Project here in Houston is focused on that. I mean, there are plenty of groups focused on speaking to authentically, I think, Mm -hmm. haven't studied it, um, and turning out Latino voters. It's just maybe a matter of need more of that, more authenticity. Like, what's your take on, I mean, we're going back to what I asked you a minute ago, and I'm just trying to sort of figure out how to get everybody on the same page. Yeah, so I think we, we do. We need more of that. We need to look outside of the traditional sort of political circles for where we're recruiting our candidates from, I think. Um, I personally, as someone who's worked a lot in the nonprofit sector and in the philanthropic community here in Houston, I think that's a great resource for identifying people who are already showing really strong leadership in their community um, and encouraging them to to get involved in a different way and to take that leap. And, um, you know, I would say Representative Christina Morales is a great example of somebody who was doing that for a long time and was not just as a as an entrepreneur and as a business owner, but as a, a community leader and as someone who is leading a nonprofit family foundation that um, was doing so much in the community, and that translated very well to then running for office and really understanding what are the needs of my community. Um, so I think that you know we we should be looking at that. We should be doing more of that. I'd like to see the party at every level, local, state, and and national. I'd like to see it be more of in a enforcement or accountability arm, if you will, so that it's not just about how we are recruiting and getting new candidates um, to run and into office, but what are we doing with the ones that are already there and what's the onus on them to make sure that they're helping bring more Latinos to the table, if you will. And um, yeah, I'd like to see the party turn up the pressure, I think, on our current elected officials to ensure that, you know, we're all working together to uh, to increase our representation. What's your outlook on November's election? I mean, we've said it, many others are saying, and in, in the fact that it is true, Texas is a battleground state. The question is, uh, right now, you know, whoever the presidential nominee is going to be will impact that to some degree, I think. Um, what's your outlook, though, for major Democratic gains in November? You know, I mean, I think it's great news that the National Party is going to start investing some resources here. So much of their financial resources obviously come from Texas, and so it's great that some of that is going to go back into Texas, and I definitely think that's going to have impact um, on what happens in November. Um, I think that we will probably have some gains. I don't think that we will realize the gains that we're looking for necessarily. I just think that's a little bit longer term goal than this cycle. So in terms of issues, uh, what issues are, you know, some folks get maybe stuck that one or two issues are of great concern to the 
Latino community, but I think that um, that's probably not true. Um, talk about what, you know, how, in terms of issues, how, how do we reach more Latino voters? Sure. I mean, I think we don't reach them by only talking about immigration. And I think that, um, you know, Latinos are very entrepreneurial. And so when we start talking about economic opportunity, that's something that really speaks to the Latino community. And of course, healthcare is hugely important in the Latino community. So there's a number of issues that matter to us. And um, we just need to hear candidates talking to us and have them knocking on our doors and talking about that whole range of issues that's important to us. Michelle, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the SignalCast. Joining us today is Jay Iyer, a political science professor at UHD, University of Houston downtown. How are you, Jay? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Great, great. So I wanted to jump, jump right into the debate that occurred recently this week in South Carolina. And I wanted to get your initial thoughts on it um, and, and your gut reaction from watching it. <laughs> well, it was, uh, it was a bit of a, bit of a, a rugby scrum at times. Um, I, I think sort of two things sort of stood out. One, um, there's no doubt that Bernie Sanders is the, the front runner in the race right now. He's sort of positioned uh, both, both in terms of polling and in terms of where the, 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 the major candidates left in the field. Um, to be the the front runner, and that was pretty evident early on. Um, it's also in- interesting. Um, you know, I think it was probably Vice President Biden's best debate that he's had so far. Um, he's done very well. He did very well in that debate, so much so to the point that I think the the overnight polls showed him. I think picking up dramatically in South Carolina. Um, now, there's one poll that came out that said he was about 18 points ahead, which is pretty pretty dramatic. Um, but I, I do think sort of two things are at play here. One, the moderate lane of the uh, the Democratic Party uh, in terms of the, the field is pretty crowded um, with essentially the progressives having kind of uh, Senator Sanders and Senator Warren as sort of that progressive, progressive centrist candidate, uh, the only one that's left. The moderates are essentially the rest of the field, um, and that's having a real effect. Now, the one thing I would tell people to remember is that we want to think of these, there's two two factors here. One, we don't have winner take all in the Texas Democratic primary, in the primary system in, in the Democratic primaries. So you have to get a 15% uh, delegate thr- uh, threshold uh, in order to get any delegates. And at the end of the day, the, 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 the strategy is less about winning states uh, and more about accumulating delegates to get you to that 1991 magic number. And so for, for someone like Elizabeth Warren, I know this was talked about a lot on social media, the question was, why is Elizabeth Warren spending all her time attacking Michael Bloomberg? Because if you look at the polling in Texas, for example, the reason Elizabeth Warren would get no delegates in Texas if the polling stands as is, in large part because Michael Bloomberg is polling at 17%. When, when the, if you look at the polling with Bloomberg out, she's at 17% herself. She go, comes up from 11 to 17 and so it, it's in her interest, for example, to go after Bloomberg. Um, it Did t- you think she scored a particularly good moment against Bloomberg in that? Debate? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I think there was a little bit of kind of you know, uh, you know, kind of you know, backing over the truck when he was <laughs> his, the the carcass of his campaign uh, was on the ground, and she keeps running over it. I think she's trying to reinforce his lack of electability in the Democratic primary, and that seems to be, I think, 
manifesting itself. I mean, um, if you look at some of the polling uh, in other states, Michael Bloomberg is spending an awful lot of money to get very little return. Um, and so the real question is, is if Senator, is if Vice President Biden has a pretty strong victory in South Carolina, how much does that buoy him going forward? How much does he become a real credible alternative to, to Senator Sanders? And whether, um, because right now, if you look at the states in play, um, number, uh, you know, in all of the polling, first or second is either Sanders um, or, or, uh, or Biden. That's going to be your one, too. I mean, Bloomberg's just not a factor as an individual. He's a factor as sort of pulling folks down. Right. Um, and, yeah. and, and what about Bernie himself? Did he do a pretty decent job or a good job looking like the front runner in that debate? I, I, I mean, I think, I think the problem he has is that he, it, it's remarkable for, for someone who's been on the stage as long as he has uh, in terms of the, the, the public stage. He's probably one of the least vetted major candidates we've had. Um, you know, at this stage in 2016, you know, and for, for obvious reasons, pretty much everyone knew everything about Hillary Clinton. Um, that's just not the case uh, with, uh, with um, uh, Senator Sanders. And I also think the biggest issue he has, of course, is that Republicans for a very long time called, like to call Democrats socialists as a pejorative. Bernie Sanders is happy to accept that moniker uh, and wear it as kind of a badge of honor um, and make the case for why, you know, sort of his brand of democratic socialism is the path forward. We know from the polling that a pretty high percentage of the general public has a negative perception or negative view of the concept of socialism as an alternative. Um, and so I think, I think he's going to be swimming upstream on that. He just has a, there's just a lot of material year after year on um, whether it's his voting record or whether some of the statements he's made related to, to Cuba, which came up uh, in, in the lead up to that. Um, again, I would keep I would remind everyone that some of the statements related to Cuba or Russia are essentially no more offensive than some of the things that, that President Trump has said vis-a-vis -vis, uh, North Korea or China himself. I think the big difference, of course, is he has the bandwidth to do that because of sort of some of the negative things he said in the past. And there's a presumption that he's not, you know, a closet socialist, um, whereas that's not necessarily the case uh, with Senator Sanders. I think the issue for him is, is he did well. I think there was, um, he took a lot of fi incoming fire from folks like um, Mayor Buttigieg, um, and to a lesser extent, uh, uh, Senator Klobuchar, I think the issue for him is whether or not as the field sort of focuses after uh, South Carolina and Super Tuesday, how much of it can he get? And will, will there be the kind of scrutiny? We're starting to see some of that now. Um, there's been, you know, there's, there's talks about the, the 1998 bill that he did related to um, waste, uh, nuclear waste in, in Texas that was, was deposited here from Vermont. Um, a bill that he passed over the objections of others. Um, and so it's sort of some interesting things here. I wanted to look to Texas a little bit, um, where Biden and Sanders are currently tied and Warren's not uh, too far behind as well. Um, what do you think is going to be the deciding factor in, in whoever gets the most votes uh, between those two leading candidates in Texas? Yeah, you need 15% to get delegates. Um, and so the whole question is who's gonna meet that threshold? Right now, um, you know, 
Klobuchar, Buttigieg are well below that threshold, so they're likely not to get any delegates out of it while they may get votes. The real question is the Michael Bloomberg effect. Um, he's had one disastrous debate performance, one kind of mediocre performance, um, continues uh, sort of the barrage. So the question is how much will folks here, he's got a, his best infra area, the best state in terms of infrastructure for him has been Texas. The question is how much does he actually take? Um, I think the factor with, with Vice President Biden is, does he get a bump out of his debate performance, but more importantly, the results out of South Carolina? One of the things to keep in mind is probably, I think less so now, but a little about less than half of the total likely vote has already been cast in Texas before the South Carolina primary. Last day of early vote is the day of, of, of the South Carolina primary, so you're going to have about 50%. will be interesting to see the differential four candidates in terms of the late deciders on E-Day versus the, the, the folks who, who sort of committed early prior to South Carolina. What I suspect happens is that, is that Vice President Biden wins Texas uh, and that Senator Sanders is a strong second. The real question to me is who's going to be that third candidate? Um, does Warren sort of uh, emerge back again? Um, does Michael Bloomberg get a whole lot closer than, than, than some people would want uh, or see right now? Um, because for him, I think it, it's a situation where he staked a lot. So he's got he's to get that third place finish here um, to be one of the top three. Um, and, then, uh, and so that to me is the, the four viable candidates. If you look at the states in total, those are really the only four candidates that have national campaigns. Um, Senator Klobuchar obviously staying in through Minnesota, the Minnesota caucus. I'm not really sure what Mayor Buttigieg's strategy is going forward. Um, he just doesn't have enough presence in enough of these states to matter. He's not a factor in California. California looks solidly to be a, a, a stronghold for Senator Sanders. But here in Texas, I think that's really the question is who's that third candidate or even that fourth candidate to break that threshold of 15% to be in it. Because if you're not then I don't know how viable you can be. Right. Uh, one of the big things, possibly the leading factor in the minds of voters, is defeating Trump on November 8th. And that's influencing a lot of their decisions, um, especially in Texas, which is an emerging swing state. And while both Sanders and Biden are losing to Trump by similar margins in Texas, Biden backers in the state, like Congresswoman Sylvia Garcia and State House Rep. Rafael Anchia, have been making arguments that Sanders, and just to be clear, these are both uh, you know, politicians who have endorsed Biden, mm -hmm. have been making arguments that Sanders would be bad for yeah. down-ballot races. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, so, so the, the, the theory behind it is, is, that, is that Senator Sanders has particular appeal to urban voters and uh, to non-college-educated white voters. But if you look at some of the polling, he struggles with college-educated suburban voters. And because of the way Texas House seats are drawn, they're, they're largely suburban districts now. Um, and, and so the challenge for Senator Sanders, as the argument is, is that um, CD22 in Fort Bend and Brazoria County, CD2 um, in Northern Harris County, um, CD10, which, which goes from Austin to Houston, um, CD21, similar situation, 
uh, Austin to Dallas or Austin, San Antonio. Those, these congressional districts and some of the state house seats and counties like in Fort Bend and in, in, in some of the suburban areas are vulnerable to either uh, for Democrats um, eroding some of the gains they made in 18, but more to the point, not being able to flip them. There, as we know famously, there's 10 to 12 seats, 10 seats that Beto O'Rourke had won in 18 that are held by Republican state reps. Those are all in suburban areas. Um, and if you're a candidate that struggles, the general consensus is, or view is, is that Biden is a better candidate than Sanders. Now, here's the, here's the clincher, right? Where I think that argument um, or sort of the, the counterfactual to it. So much of 18 was predicated on that, on or, uh, the success O'Rourke had in drawing out some of these suburban voters. We had the straight ticket in Texas. There was not as much differential. Um, I think what's gonna be interesting this play is without the straight ticket, ironically, the effect of the top of the ballot is less so on the bottom. So what you might find is if, if Sanders is the nominee, that whether you're a Lizzie Fletcher in CD7 or ultimately a Sri Kulkarni in, in CD22 uh, or a Seema Lajvardian in, in CD2, you just don't run, you're running your own race independently. You're less dependent on the national ticket. Now, I think the challenge for them is what you're running, you're running with the top of the ticket with a democratic socialist you're just going to have a circumstance where there's going to be a percentage of voters that may not be inclined to vote for Senator Sanders, but may want to vote for that congressional ticket um, and, and down ballot races. Without the straight ticket, it's much, much easier to do it. So the impact of having a, a presidential candidate that's weaker um, here, in, here in Texas on the down ballot may not be as pronounced this cycle because we don't have a straight ticket. So in an odd sort of way, Republicans want, got rid of the straight ticket thinking it would help them, but it may actually help down ballot Democrats if the top of the ticket is weaker. Right. Um, and, and, and just on Biden, I mean, I mean, looking, I'm curious, um, when you look at the gains made in 2016, and especially in 2018, what type of voters are the ones that are carrying this momentum in Texas and which front-running candidate really has the best appeal to them? So if you look at the gains, we had two things, right? We saw we saw a shift, we saw a, a rise in voter participation among, um, in, in 18 among young people, among Latinos, um, a slight growth among African-Americans and Asian-Americans and a big shift in suburban Anglo-white uh, I'm sorry, Anglo uh, women uh, in suburban counties that shifted over to the Democratic Party. Um, in terms of the profile of candidates, I mean, there's, it's sort of a mixed bag. What we know now is is that we've, we've seen an increase from 2016, but not an increase at the level of 2008. Um, and so none of these candidates are Barack Obama. Uh, the, the sort of the special sauce of increased minority participation, increased young participation, um, and sort of the ability to get kind of crossover voters. Right now, none of them have it, but that doesn't mean they won't. Um, Sanders, there's no de debating that he's generated some enthusiasm um, among younger voters. That's his strong base. Um, among minority voters, 
African-American turnout is, is, is sort of underperforming right now. But we don't know partially because we haven't seen turnouts with significant populations. We'll see here in Texas. But some of the polling seems to indicate that. Um, among Hispanics, I think the real question is whether or not, you know, he's got an advantage. Um, Sanders has shown an advantage. We don't know if that's going to result in a turnout advantage. And so some of it is twofold. Are you getting his vote share has gone up dramatically, but whether that's generating new turnout, I think is somewhat debatable. Um, but right now, there's no evidence that any of these candidates are generating, you know, extraordinary turnout. There's little evidence that 2000, uh, that the, the 2020 turnout is going to be more than 2008. And that's what we really need here. Right. And looking at some of these down ballot races um, in the state house, we're only nine seats away, if I'm not mistaken, from Democrats capturing the Republican-controlled Texas right. House. Uh, you know, what are, what are your predictions and, and thoughts on on the Texas legislature in 2020? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting thing. I think you've got a couple couple factors at play. Obviously, we talked a little bit about the the effect of the the top of the ticket. Um, the, who the presidential nominee will probably have a, have a certainly play a role. Um, you know the funding will should be there for these candidates. Um, a lot of it is going to come down to how successful we are uh, Democrats are in terms of turning out uh, not just their base voters because again most of these these nine seats um, are in suburban areas. They're not in urban areas with some exceptions. One thirty eight. Um, which was held by Dwayne Bohack, is in sort of the heart of an urban district, kind of in sandwich. He's surrounded by Democratic districts around uh, 134 in, um, in, in Houston, uh, currently held by State Rep. Uh, Sarah Davis, um, is a strongly Democratic district that she, she holds. It's a unique district in that it's um, highly affluent, um, but votes sort of culturally, uh, is culturally Democratic, at least on social issues. Um, that's a district where I think um, she has way overperformed other Republicans. I think she beats the entirety of the ticket uh, by a large margin. Um, and so, but th those two aside, the remaining ticket, the remaining seats are all really in uh, suburban areas. So how they do? Also, Democrats have to hold a few of the suburban seats. They won by relatively small margins. Uh, and Katie Gina Kalani's seat um, uh, is is probably the best example of that. So. I think the chances are there. It's just a question of making sure that that, that apparatus in, uh, continues in terms of turnout, um, quality candidates, because we've got primaries in all of these races, uh, in some of these races, especially ones down in, uh, in Fort Bend County. And so that's really the question. I, I think it's too early to tell, um, but, um, but a lot of it's going to depend on, on the core, how coordinated campaigns are, how how much um, is invested by sort of the presidentials here in Texas and kind of what the general direction of the country is. But I, I, there's certainly an opportunity for Democrats um, to win and to, to, to flip the House. Are there any other interesting primaries that have caught your eye and that you're paying attention to in the cycle? Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things is, um, you know, in general, you've got here in Texas, you, uh, we, you know, we elect our judges. So many of the judicial seats are contested at the primary level in the urban counties in a way that they haven't been in a long time. You've got 18 contested judicial races um, if, you're, if you're voting. Um, and so, you know, there's been this sort of push to kind of reform the way the judiciary is selected here in Texas. 
this might be the last cycle where we have wide-scale voting. Um, and so it may end up sort of resulting in a freeze. So you've got a lot of these interesting dynamics at play there. Um, but, but the judicial races to me are interesting. Um, here in Harris County, you've got a, a pretty hotly contested um, you know, DA's race that's going on with Kim Ogg, and, and she's got t uh, the incumbent uh, who has sort of two challengers, uh, Carvana Cloud and, um, um, and Audia Jones. And so that will be sort of an interesting dynamic um, because that's sort of the, the reform side. One of the, the sort of the big difference is t 2008 saw very few primaries, uh, contested primaries. Um, 2016 saw some, um, 2018 didn't see very many, 2020 is showing a lot. And so a lot of the action has moved from the general election to the Democratic primary. And so you're seeing a lot of people um, get engaged in that process. So it'll, it'll be interesting. We should get good turnout as a result. I think these smaller races in increment are gonna, are gonna help with that. And of course, we're gonna have a hotly contested presidential. So next few days are gonna be interesting. Absolutely, and one last question. I wanted to hear your thoughts on the Henry Cuellar versus Jessica Cisneros race happening in South Texas. Yeah, that's a, a lot of national national. Right, you've got, you've got the, the Speaker of the House coming in for, uh, for, for Henry Cuellar. You've got uh, you know, Senator Sanders and Senator Warren and, and I think Justice Democrats are, are, are backing Jessica Cisneros. You know, that's going to be, you know, some people view this as kind of a bellwether type race. I'm not sure about that. The interesting thing about that district is that it is far less demo solidly democratic than I think people think of it as. Um, certainly, um, this is not... It, Henry Coyar is an interesting candidate who has sort of played both sides for a long time. He's an extremely moderate Democrat, um, certainly by, by Texas standards. Um, I, I'm not quite sure how that's going to go. A lot of it, I think he probably benefits a little bit from a larger turnout. Um, uh, you get a lot of sort of casual voters in there. Um, I, I think what would be interesting is... I would expect him to win and hold on, uh, but that's probably going to be a very close race. Absolutely. Definitely a lot of interesting stuff happening happening up and down the ballot to look out for. Uh, Jay, thanks so much for joining us today. I really hey, appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. We're joined right now by um, Representative Rafael Anchia of Dallas. Representative, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. Been a long, I've been wanting to do this for a while. So let's get to the big story. Obviously, that um, Super Tuesday is days away, and um, you are a uh, Joe Biden supporter. T tell us why. So uh, you may know, but I was an appointee of President Obama on the Advisory Committee on Trade Policy and Negotiation as we were negotiating uh, trade agreements in South Korea and Colombia and working on the um, on uh, sort of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I got to 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 work with uh, Vice President Biden and get to know got to know him and Dr. Jill Biden pretty well. Um, we were I was invited to the White House on a couple of different occasions and also to the the Vice President's residence. Um, I've also admired his work on gun safety, which is something I spend a lot of time on legislatively, and um, and and think he's he really is the perfect foil for Donald Trump. Uh, he is, he certainly has the credibility to be a commander in chief. He's, 
He shepherded us through some very difficult issues. And finally, he is that steady hand that, um, that I think the, the country desires. Someone who is going to rebuild institutions in this country, um, uh, raise our, our profile in the world again as that beacon that we were previously under President Obama. And then finally, the last thing that, that, that attracts me is I think, really, I, I think he can be very competitive and win in Texas. Um, right. You know, while people are looking at the national uh, head-to-heads, uh, right now President Trump is, is, trails everybody, but I, I really do think that Vice President Biden attracts those independents and those suburban women that we're going to need to continue the gains uh, that we've been making in the legislature and uh, in large urban areas. Well, in so uh, most recent polling, actually the past two or three polls show uh, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden neck and neck, basically tied among Democrat, likely Democratic primary voters in Texas. Um, you were uh, quoted in the Tribune this week um, about Bernie, and to t- talk about the potential impact you think he could have, you know, if he if Bernie does take take it, um, the impact uh, down ballot in Texas. So my quote was that post post Beto uh, and and post picking up 12 seats in the Texas legislature, we really uh, the the country believes that Texas is a swing state. In fact, um, Texas, with very little investment in 2016, uh, actually was more competitive than Ohio, which had massive investment. So we have generated a great deal of momentum. We're starting to keep dollars here in Texas from national groups. And I think the and from DC and from DC, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and and whereas we had served as an ATM in the past, mm-hmm. just exporting dollars, where people finally believe, and um, and whether it's the state house or winning a statewide office, I think we're at the cusp. My concern about Senator Sanders is that he's going as many people as he's going to bring in, and I and I I do believe the thesis that new voters are coming into the process. Um, that he may expel or or um, discourage that many more people from either participating, either voting Democratic, um, or or maybe even pushing people to Donald Trump. And that's been borne out by at least a couple of studies. I saw one on Vox just recently that says that whatever gains we might see from young voters, um, those are going to be offset by pushing independents away. And so that's my big concern. Only time will tell. It's possible that I'm just missing this this uh, this whole thing. But when I look at the aggregate new voters that have come into the process and the people who, who helped us win 12 um, state house seats, many in suburban areas, it really was those independents that broke our way rather than new voters coming in. And so, and and the um, degree to which Senator Sanders would need to bring in new voters into the process would have to be something that we have never seen in Texas electoral history. And even with President Obama, which was a complete phenomenon in 2008 and generated so much excitement, it is an important data point that the 2008 numbers for this presidential primary are still higher than the 2020 numbers. So if that is, if that is um, an indicator, you, you might even grant that President Obama generated that much more excitement 
um, than, uh, uh, than Bernie Sanders is generating now. And we still didn't have the type of, of bump in new voters um, that, that, made, um, that made Texas flip. So those are some of the variables that I'm looking at now. Well, and so far, right, um, former vice president hasn't yet won a caucus or primary. That could change um, on Saturday in South Carolina. We'll see. Um, it could also obviously change on, on Super Tuesday. But uh, right. I guess the question is, can he still uh, pull it out? Um, are, we, are we getting past that point? We're getting close. I mean, we're certainly getting close to the tipping point. It doesn't help. You know, I mean, I, I remind people still that Senator Sanders here in Texas is below a quarter of, of the electorate in his polling, right? So um, now who knows if you aggregated some of Senator Warren's supporters, what it might look like. But what appears to be kind of the, the, the Bernie lane and then everybody else, and who knows the, how that would break out, it is still a vast majority of the Democratic Party uh, electorate that is not with Senator Sanders. But to your point, we are getting close. I think the greatest advantage for uh, Vice President Biden is his name ID. People know his record. Um, he's certainly performing uh, better in debates more recently. And um, uh, the one liability he has, he hasn't raised that much money. You know, he's a humble guy, never yeah. raised a bunch of money when he was in the Senate and was always identified as the quote-unquote least wealthy member of the Senate. But um, he really has struggled in fundraising, and, and, and that, that I think will be a greater inhibitor to the man or the record or the campaign um, th than anything else because you can, you, you can, you can ride on um, name ID for only so long, and, but you do have to compete on the airwaves. So you you uh, represent uh, my hometown of Dallas, and we at the Signal want to uh, continue to expand our coverage in Dallas. So I'm curious, uh, any any thoughts on how folks in Dallas are leaning um, uh, for the president, or is it all across the board like it is across the state and the country? It really is, and 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 you know earlier we were talking about age, right? And I think you know <laughs> yeah. age demographics play an important role in this, and um, and and so I, I, I the the breakdown on who's supporting who has gender ramifications, has age ramifications. So it's tough to tell. I know uh, that that uh, when Vice President Biden came into town, I mean. There were a lot of people who had served in the administration, a lot of people who admired the work that he and President Obama did and had um, and, and and felt strongly about continuing that success. Um, and then there are other pockets of the district that I represent that are, you know, uh, either Warren or, or, or Bernie or Bloomberg, interestingly enough. And um, it is just so highly fragmented that uh, the, the time will come in the near future, I, I suspect after Super Tuesday, when you will see people dropping out and coalescing behind a candidate. The other big story, obviously, uh, in this state politically is the state house, And uh, Democrats are only nine seats away from taking the House back. Um, we'll have to compete, obviously, in more than, than those nine. But it is um, the pivotal place to to focus for the state and, and really go from either, you know, depending on how you see it, purple or some shade of blue. Um, so obviously whatever happens in November at the state house level as well will impact 
you know, what is done, as you all know, uh, in the legislature, which um, we go back into session in January. The state goes back into session in January. Talk about just try to underscore for, for folks how important the state house is in terms of what public policy in Texas looks like next year. So let me just step back a minute and say the Texas legislature is the governing body, the legislative body for the 10th largest economy in the world. Okay. Ahead of Russia, ahead of South Korea, ahead of Mexico, Texas is an economic juggernaut, has a lot of political power, a lot of economic power for the legislature, for the house in the legislature of the 10th largest economy of the world to be controlled by Democrats means all the difference in the world. It means we don't get bathroom bills. It means we don't get anti-immigrant legislation. It means we do something um, to fix the health care problem in this state that has us ranked last out of 50 states in the number of people that are uninsured. Then helps us set the agenda nationally. I mean, people will be, it will be such a big story. People will be looking at what Texas does. Are we able to break the logjam on gun safety? Are we able to really double down on our advantages in renewable energy in this state to make a dent in carbon emissions? I, I don't want to be too dramatic, but I also want to underscore the importance of winning the state house in the context, not only of uh, the electoral context, not only of the United States, but really the world. Texas is in and of itself, one of the most important global economies. And, and the way that Texas goes uh, will be the way that a lot of other places go. So, I mean, I, I, I fear that if we, if we don't choose wisely a, on, on primary day and we have a, a nominee that uh, is not going to be competitive in Texas, that we really set back all of this momentum that we have and we kind of snatch – defeat from the jaws of victory, to, to use an, an ironic phraseology and a commonly used saying. And uh, I, I, I'm, that is my biggest concern because so many people have worked so hard uh, to get us where we are, and I feel like we are right at the cusp of doing big things. Rafael and Chia, thanks for joining us. I'm grateful. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Texas Signal. The podcast was edited by Sara Thugvi. To find out more about who we are and what we do, please visit our website at thetexassignal.com.